Good morning to you all, and thank you for reading the passage uh, so well. Now, um, we, we come to this passage, friends, full of favorite verses. There are at least five plum verses, all, each of them a candidate to be favorite verse in the Bible for many of us. 5 verse 14, for Christ's love compels us, is one of them. 5 verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 5 verse 18, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 5 verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Be reconciled to God. 5 verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now I wonder how many of these verses hang on your uh, cubicle as a favorite verse. We could also have, they're so full and so meaningful, we could have a sermon series of five talks, one on each of those verses. So don't worry, we're not going to have five sermons today, we're only going to have one. Uh, with three points, and the three points on your outline. And the, the more I study this passage, uh, the more I realized that this passage wasn't actually about these five verses. So we're going to try to figure out how it all fits together to get to the central message of this chapter. The question to ask is, what are all these wonderful verses doing here in this letter? Why does Paul write these to the Corinthians? They are, after all, described in the first three lines of this letter as the church of God, the saints in Corinth. Surely they knew these things. Surely they were reconciled to God. So it's not an evangelistic message. We're not going to have an evangelistic message today because this passage is not an evangelistic message. But I think he gives us the answer in verse 12. It it might not win the favorite verse contest, but this verse unlocks the meaning of the passage for us today. Because Paul tells us that he writes these things for a purpose. Let me read verse 12 to you. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. So that, it calls a connection, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now to see that, we first need to travel to Corinth to see what exactly is going on there. What was the situation which made Paul write these words in this letter? Well, we've done it before. The threat brought about to the very souls in Corinth. That's what's troubling Paul. The super apostles, 12 verse 11. The impressive peddlers of God's word, we met them in chapter 2 verse 17, who were drawing people away from God away from Paul and his ministry. See, Paul must write these words. He has written the last few uh, chapters to defend his ministry. He wants the Corinthians to align themselves with him, their apostle. He wants them to be able to answer those people who accuse Paul of being weak and foolish. Those people, verse 12, who boast about things that are seen. And that's why he writes. And once we understand that, we can see how it all fits together, these five plum verses. I must apologize if any of these are your favorite verses and they hang on your cubicle wall or your laptop. 
and I don't seem to be doing justice to them in our short time. But I've been given a whole passage to preach on, and that's what I'm going to do. There are three points. We're going to see the passage through the purpose statement of verse 12. Well, it's going to be demanding, both on my part and yours. So let's do three things. First, let's get a Bible in front of us. And keep your eyes on the text, not on me, and the ushers will help you. will help you. You put up your hand now, you'll get a Bible so you can follow what's going on. Anybody needs a Bible? Please put up your hand. Don't, don't, don't be shy, just get it. Because there's not, there's, nothing is going to appear on the PowerPoint, okay? <laughs> nothing. So get a Bible in front of you. Secondly, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Please open our eyes now that we may see wondrous things in your word. Open our hearts that we will be moved to love you more. And bend our wills so that we will obey you. And please help me to speak it plainly. Amen. Well, people of BDPC, what are you proud of? Because what we take pride in will determine our actions. If you're proud of a football team, we will support it. We will we'll buy the t-shirt. We will talk about it. Paul's writing to the people of church in Corinth to take pride in this. Be proud of me, says Paul. This basis of pride will make you uh, the church God wants you to be. Now, it's an important question for us too at BDPC Singapore, isn't it? What are we proud of? Are we proud of being Presbyterian? Are we proud that we're perhaps small? That we're a good teaching church? Are we proud of our pastors? Are we proud that we are not a mega church? Or perhaps you're thinking, trick question, right? Should we even be proud at all? The preacher can't be telling us to boast? Or maybe Paul's gone mad. Paul is just boasting. Is it even Christian to boast? Well, that's verse 12 again. Is that the answer is there. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Well, Paul thinks. So Paul thinks it's okay to take pride. You see, the church had a choice in Corinth. They could boast in the wrong thing or the right thing. Paul's saying there is something wrong in boasting in the wrong thing. In what is seen. But there is nothing wrong in boasting in the right thing of what is in the heart. It's okay if you had to boast if you have the right basis for pride. Well then what is the right basis? What is it that they and we must understand so that we can boast in the right thing? What is it that we must understand so that our ministry is real? Well, just one thing. Paul wants us to boast in him. We must understand that Paul is the true apostle and we must make Paul our apostle. We must take on everything he says and does as authentic, real, God-given, Christ-modeled ministry. This is apostolic ministry. So, 
if it is real ministry, it must affect what we do as Christians. If we boast in the right things, it will make us do things rightly. So what then is the basis for authentic ministry? The three things, the three points on your, on your sheet. It's all about Christ. First of all, the judgment of Christ controls the style of ministry. Secondly, the love of Christ determines the scope of ministry, who we reach. And the commission of Christ governs the subject of ministry. Well, first point then, the judgment of Christ dictates the style of Christian ministry. Verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men and women. Paul, knowing the fear of the Lord, wants simply to persuade people. His style is dictated by Christ. Last week, we know from verse 9 that Paul is homesick. He longs for heaven. But that longing means action. We make it our aim to please him here today. And that judgment seat of Christ to which everyone, including Paul, will stand before in that last day, gives him, verse 10, that sense of accountability, which will dictate what he does. Which will dictate how he does it. So he won't be selfish when he works publicly, when he speaks. He won't indulge himself in personal excess. He won't use the tricks of the super apostles or rhetoric of nice sounding speech. Well, we need to take, to take a trip to the entertainment complex, right? The next, the next mall of first century Corinth. People wouldn't go to the cinema, right? I think there's a golden village there or something, right? No, they don't go to the cinema. They went to the halls of oratory where they would listen to debaters and philosophers speak for entertainment. You might think it's a bit mad, but that's what they did. In other words, they preferred xiang shen, not si yan, okay? They prefer this kind of debate and listen to be entertained. And the super apostles were like that. In chapter 10 to 12, we read it later on, the false teachers who had invaded the church there modeled themselves on these great speakers. Plus, plus they could boast of some ecstatic, supernatural experience. They would claim to have visions and revelations. But Paul refuses to get into that. Instead he says, I know I'm accountable to Christ and I simply, therefore, try to persuade men. Do you see the contrast to the super apostles who were impressive in every way and appealing to the worldly people in Corinth? But not Paul. Instead, 4 verse 2, and we saw this a few weeks ago, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 4 verse 5, we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. 4 verse 13, I believed, therefore I have spoken. You see that? No salt and pepper to add. What I believe, the gospel, this I speak, the gospel. Plainly. The point is, Paul's ministry style is sober-minded, simple, straight speaking of the gospel. Which means there's no place for manipulation, no place for high pressure, no place for the false prospectors or the fraudulent sales pitch. Paul's renounced all that. Instead, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. 
Now, how would a simple, plain-speaking gospel minister feel when, he com- when compared to the great speakers of the day? Well, 4 verse 7 tells you, he'll feel like a clay pot. The mere vessels for the treasures within. Well, if you're in gospel ministry and you feel like that, you shouldn't be surprised. God intends it for you. He never intended his gospel ministers to be impressive, eloquent, charming. He only intends for them to persuade. So what is this persuasion? Well, are two ingredients for persuasion. There's exaltation, which tells you to do something, backed up with explanation, with a good reason to do that thing. And what if we had one and not the other? And, and, and I suspect this is what goes on in a lot of preaching. You have explanation without exaltation. Now, first, I teach at university, right? That is what the lecturer does. Okay, knowledge goes across, no effect. Or you have exhortation without the reason behind it. Or that's just legalism. To tell you something, but you don't know why you're doing it. See, we can't have one without the other. But those are the things that the world wants. Just one of them at, a, at one time. They, they, we either want preaching to tickle the intellect without application, or we want the soundbite, the headline, the pushy message without reasoning. The great cry is, tell us what to do. We don't want to know why. Just tell us what to do. It's now my students at university. Prof, just tell us what the answer is. We don't want to know why. Tell us what we can put on the exam paper to get the A grade. We don't want to learn anything from this. Isn't it the great cry from our churches? What is the take-home message? The soundbite? The headline? Without much explanation, without, there's nothing going on in the heart. There's nothing going on in the mind. Now don't get me wrong, there must be application, but it must be backed up by substance, by good Bible reasoning. That's persuasion, and that's what authentic biblical preaching is. Well, you're asking Paul, well, Paul, it's easy for you, right? You're a trained rabbi, you got a law degree from Jerusalem University, you're skilled in the oral tradition, you know how to talk. You could debate philosophers in Athens, convince Jewish leaders in the synagogue, but, but what Paul has in mind here is the very opposite of unachievable. You didn't have to go to the Toastmasters Club to learn this. You know, Toastmasters, they teach you how to do public speaking, apparently. In fact, it is the very opposite of speaking eloquently with impressive speech. Now, the ancient world had a word for that. It's sophistry. Where you get the word sophisticated from. In contrast, were those who merely persuaded the simple guys. So you had the sophisticated peddlers of God's word on one side, with a whole arsenal of oratorical skills, against the plain, simple speaking Paul, with his plain proclamation of the message. So that was the conflict, that was the fight. And Paul tells us, we persuade. Just two simple ingredients. Explanation, the reason, followed by an exaltation, the implication, the application. Now you don't have to go very far for an example of this style. Verse 11 itself is an example of persuasion. You notice that? Therefore, knowing, see the reason? The fear of the Lord. We, implication, persuade others. 
That is the example of persuasion. And it's got to do with people. So, uh, preachers beware, we're not taking an exam. Uh, We're not persuading an examiner. We are persuading people to turn to the living God. Persuading others, reaching others, good newsing others who do not know Jesus. Well, how do we do that? By stating the truth plainly. Convincing them that Jesus really lived. He really died for your sins. The sins which make you an enemy of God. He really rose again. And therefore you can come back to God. So, implication? Come back to God. That's persuasion. You see, the outward method, the visible KPI, the numbers in church, you wouldn't choose persuasion. There are much easier ways, okay? If you want to fill churches or even plant more churches, try, it's been tried in history, guns and swords. Life will be immediately worse for you if you do not become a Christian. Or at least try pressure tactics if you want to grow a church. Train your church members to use pyramid selling strategies or corporate identity. You know, uh, you belong to XYZ Church and we want to grow it by 1,000 people, so go out and meet your quota in any way you want to do it. Or try bribes. Tell the non-Christian, life will get better if you became a Christian. Well, not for Paul. Paul's not selling anything to anyone. Paul's not going to become your TV evangelist, promising everything under the sun, because he knows it doesn't work. Well, sometimes in my area of work, uh, the Christian ministry at the universities, a non-Christian walks in the door and comes to talk to us. We rejoice quietly. Uh, just two weeks ago, Amy is a postgrad linguistic scholar from, from China. Now, a big stumbling block for her is that being a Christian is only for weak people who need comfort, who need things, who need blessing. To her, God is man-made, a human projection of our need for someone to satisfy all our earthly desires. I think, I suspect she must have tuned in to a TV evangelist. And it didn't work with Amy, thank God. But telling her the gospel over an hour or so engaged her, persuaded her, made her see we were not trying to bribe her. And she was cornered. It wasn't so much the felt needs, but the real need of being reconciled to God that she needed to think about. And she's gone away thinking about that. Hopefully she comes back next week so we can continue. But you see, it, it doesn't work. And Paul's not going to offer bribes. He's not going to listen to the demands of the times either. He's not going to adopt the flashy methods of the super apostles who go on and on about supernatural ecstatic experiences, miracles, healings. Now before you think like the Corinthians, well, this Paul is probably just jealous, right? I mean, he couldn't do those things. So what's the best thing to do? Say, that's wrong. Maybe that's why he's saying this. But, But listen to this in Acts. Paul can do these things. He could cure just by sneezing into a handkerchief and passing the handkerchief to someone and say, give this handkerchief to somebody else and he will live. Can Paul do miracles? He could, he could speak in tongues more than any of them. First Corinthians tells you that. Chapter 12 of this letter says he's had more and better visions and revelations than any of them. He could. But he wouldn't allow himself. See, it says in verse 13, if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. 
if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Do you see what he's saying? He could do all those things, but he won't. For their sake, he would be sober-minded. Because if he did show off in a visible way of what is seen, it will make him no better than the super-apostles. The Corinthians will be boasting of the wrong things. If that was seen as the measure of ministry, he'd be just like the super-apostles. See, Paul could, but he won't. He won't be like them. The super-apostles of a different gospel, a different Jesus, a different spirit. Why? Because it's not about filling churches. It's not about profit. It's because it's about salvation. It's about winning souls. Those things don't work. In light of Judgment Day, in light of Paul's understanding that without Jesus, all will perish. In light of understanding his task to be God's light to all the nations, he knows that these things won't work. Sure, you might fill churches, but you wouldn't be filling heaven. What's needed instead is a message which God has given and God will use. If only men would speak it, persuading other men in a sober-minded way. Now, many of us have heard or encountered this phenomenon of holy laughter of the Toronto blessing or something. But Paul is saying, it doesn't really matter what you do on the floor writhing in laughter. What really matters is when you get up and speak to people the gospel. That's how the world will be won. Even if the more superstitious people like Singaporeans came to church because they saw this phenomenon and inside them they felt the urge to to laugh also. And it's quite easy, right? If I start laughing, you start laughing also, right? If I yawn, you yawn also, right? But if just because they came to church because they felt the urge to laugh, would they be saved on that last day? Do you think they're really persuaded by people laughing on the floor that God has sent His Son for their sin? No, it won't work. You will fill the churches, but it will not work. And Paul knows that. The fear of the Lord, the deep sense of accountability to God, will not let Paul join in in his ecstatic experiences in public. The only public thing he will do is to persuade men and women with God-given, intelligible words. And then he will depend on God to use those words for God to speak his powerful words to change things, to declare into the emptiness, into the darkness of the heart, the same words he uttered at creation. Let there be light. He will let God shine his light into man's darkened heart. You see, Paul does the preaching. God will do the supernatural miracle. And it works in the heart. Paul knows this, so convinced that simple persuasion is the way to go, that this is the style that God demands. Verse 11, he can say this, but what we are is known to God. See, that's not a problem. His style, as far as as style goes, before the great judge God, he's alright. But he hopes that he is known to the Corinthians too, that this is the ministry of the true apostle, the second half of verse 11. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. You see, it's not Paul that has the problem. 
What he is is known to the all-seeing God who looks at the heart. But you, Corinthians, get with the program. Don't you see? This is authentic gospel ministry. This persuasion, ministry of persuasion, that is what God wants us to do. This is what he will be judged by when God calls him to account. The style of simple, straightforward speaking of the gospel. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. <coughs> so, we're coming back to verse 12 again. Was this how the Corinthians judged Paul's ministry? By the divine strategy of persuasion, which works the heart, or was it by signs and wonders? And now I have to ask you, is this what we look for in our ministers? It's important for us here at BDPC Singapore, if this sort of ministry is authentic Christian ministry, well, first of all, expected of us who stand here and preach, demanded of us, don't encourage us to give you the soundbite preaching. Don't encourage us to use emotional blackmail. Don't encourage us to entertain you. Don't encourage us to give you a lecture. Instead, make us want to persuade you by the simple, straight talking of the gospel. I think we at BDBC are probably correct in distancing ourselves from the charismatic movement, the mega church movement, the corporate strategies of church growth. But in doing so, have we left ourselves with no strategy at all? Well, this is the divine strategy. The simple setting forth of God's word. Persuasion. And if it is, it should drive all our programs, our evangelistic meetings. We will raise up the platforms where this persuasion can be done in small groups, over dinners, just like over Good Friday, one-to-ones. The accountability before the judgment seat of Christ makes Paul persuade men. Let's remember that we too will one day appear before the same judgment seat. So let that dictate what we do. Let that dictate our style. Right, so much for style. How about scope? We know how to persuade. Who do we persuade? Our second point. The love of Christ governs the judgment of, governs the scope of a Christian ministry. If understanding the judgment of Christ governs the style, the love of Christ governs the scope. And the scope is anybody, anywhere, at any place, any time, at any cost. And notice how it's got all to do with the cross of Jesus. The love of Christ compels us. That love of Christ which brought Jesus to the cross will bring us out there too. Verse 14, one has died for all. But remember, Paul's not saying this to evangelize the Corinthians. That's not why Paul's writing this. They were already Christians. He's telling them that what it means to be raised with Jesus. The implication of being raised with Jesus is that one must no longer be a self-indulgent, selfish, self-centered person who lives or preaches only for themselves. You see verse 15? And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul knows Christ died for all. 
that Christ died even for him. Christ died for the sins of Paul, the self-righteous Pharisee doing the works of the law to justify himself, to bring himself righteousness. Well, no more of that, Paul says. I've died to that, I've died to self, and I'm not going to show off, I'm not going to do anything which draws attention to myself. Because he doesn't live for himself, he lives for Christ. And it means a change perspective on everything. Look at verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. He's got a changed view of people. Though It goes on. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. He's got a changed view of Jesus. That Jesus isn't, wasn't just some popular leader, a good teacher. Uh, that Christ wasn't just a worldly king who's going to win a military victory over the Romans. Because Paul acknowledges that he's a new creation with a changed, a new perspective on things. And it's not just him. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, if you are new to Christianity, it doesn't make you a good person by giving you a set of rules or a veneer of respectability. What do you do on Sunday? Oh, I went to church. Being in Christ gives you a completely new beginning. It is the ultimate Christian experience. The most remarkable Christian experience, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Literally. You can't help seeing a parallel in 4 verse 6, can't you? Where conversion is parallel to creation, is there any bigger miracle? That a sinner is made completely new, righteous, reconciled to God? But what is the chief implication of being a new creation? Paul wants to get across to the Corinthians. It was this. You've got to give up the old way of seeing things. You've got to take on the new way of seeing things. First of all, he sees Jesus as from God. Previously, he thought Jesus was not the Christ, not from God, but some imposter leading good Jews away from the synagogues to write. But then he's become a new creation. Now he sees clearly he's changed from persecutor of Christ to apostle of Christ. What happened? On the Damascus road, Christ took him in. And then Paul, new creation. And immediately Paul's a complete change in life in thinking from the world obsessed with personal outward glories to which he had many to one obsessed with serving Christ. A new creation. A new beginning. The old has gone, the new has come. From now on, we regard nobody in a worldly way, not even Christ. And if anyone is in Christ, Christians at Corinth, Christians at BTPC, why do you still think the old way? The worldly way. To judge gospel ministry by the criteria of how super, how popular how great the minister is in experience, in great speaking skills, in visions, in signs and wonders. Well, that's the old way. Don't boast about that. Not if you are in Christ. Not if you are a new creation. I wonder if you can see that this is liberating. Being a new creation is extremely liberating. What now motivates us is the love of Christ to compel us to share the gospel. 
It's not the confidence that I went to a good university so I can probably persuade my colleagues using intellect. It is not the guilt that I'm not doing what I should. That's a wrong controlling factor. It is not the fantastic experience I want to share that will help me spreading the good news of Jesus. Well, I don't have any fantastic experiences except this one, that I too am a new creation. You see, that's the old way of seeing things. The new way liberates us to be His ministers. Well, what does it mean for us today? BDPC Singapore. Each and every one of you in Christ, a new creation. Can we see that? Can we see the things as they are meant to be seen? What God tells us what to look for in this passage. Or do we still see as the world sees, blinded by this world as it is? Well, if we start to see things in new creation's way, Paul's way, that Christ died for all. And we see this as a controlling factor of the scope of Christian ministry. Would it not make us want to reach all? It should affect what we do when we meet corporately on a Sunday. It should affect the scope of our meetings. Will tradition dictate our style of how we run the meetings and therefore who we can reach? Or would the love of Christ, the scope to reach all sorts of people, make us think about how to make things a little friendlier to all sorts of people? Perhaps a little bit less ritual and jargon. Or will tradition continue to dictate our style? Or will we let the love of Christ for all make us give up some of our habits so that we can reach a few more than we do? Christ died for all. So let's just start with all sorts of people from around the neighbourhood. Okay, The Mr. Lambs with his white van. Are we getting into conversations with him? Or do we... Oh, it's Mr. Lam. I had an argument with him once before. (laughs) Will we go speak to him? The brothers from Helping Hand. Will we embrace them? Outside of a Sunday, at our workplaces and schools, will we remember the scope of Christian ministry? If we do, we're doing one-to-one evangelism. That's the best way to reach all. One by one by one. And it's not just your friends. I have a suspicion that we're so into, let's reach our friends, that we've actually cut off a lot of people from knowing Jesus. Christ's love compels us. Would it let it force us out of our comfort zone? To persuade the security guard in your office or apartment block that Jesus died and was raised to life for your sins? I think the good rule of thumb is that if you engage with someone in conversation for more than 10 minutes, you really should start talking about Jesus. You should say, when can I bring Jesus in? You should be wanting to come out of your mouth. 10 minutes for a Singapore conversation, that's really long, you know. Or if you meet the same person every week, you really should start talking. Now, I speak to my physiotherapist as he's manipulating my shoulder, right? That's about it. I can't move any more than that. And in between the screams as he's doing this, I tell him about Jesus. I don't think he really hears me. But or the brother here who brought uh, this guy who was selling, selling tissue paper at the hawker centre, brought him to church. 
The sister who talked about Christ to a girl uh, young enough to be a daughter while on tour. Perfect setting. 14 days eating together on a tour bus, nowhere to run. (laughs) Getting into conversation. Reaching them one by one. But I'm sure you can do better than that. You must. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Well, third point. The commission of Christ governs the subject of Christian ministry. So the judgment of Christ will dictate the style of Christian ministry and the love of Christ will determine the scope of Christian ministry. Who will do it? Oh, the simple answer, we don't have much time for this, is you and I. Now, if you're still a bit blurred with what Christian ministry is, it's not about being a priest. It is not about being a prophet. And it's definitely not about being a psychotherapist. Counseling you all the time. It is chiefly about being a messenger. Now, when Paul wrote this, uh, the us in verse 18 and 19 are primarily Paul and possibly Timothy, because he, in chapter 1, verse 1, the letters from Paul and Timothy. But in these verses, he's giving us the pattern for ministry, apostolic ministry, for whoever does this sort of work after them. Well, the big idea of a Christian ministry could be summed up in one word, reconciliation. Just one word, reconciliation. Look at verse 18 and 19. Let me read it to you again. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is this ministry? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You see, the two verses interpret each other. God initiates once and for all, through Christ, reconciliation. And God continues throughout time through the messengers with this message of reconciliation. And all this is from God. God's given two gifts. Reconciliation and the messengers of reconciliation. Well, first of all, uh, reconciliation. Explain in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How is the world to be reconciled to God? How is God to be reconciled to the world which deserves judgment? Well, a great exchange has happened. I'm going to ask Danielle to help me with this, just to illustrate what it means for the great exchange to have happened. Okay? Now, I've got this t-shirt. It's the oldest t-shirt in my cupboard. It looks really dirty. Right? This. I use it for doing DIY jobs and it's always horrible. I got my wife and kids to write this this morning. It's got selfish, unloving, angry, proud, what's that one? Inconsiderate, lazy, hurtful. Now, they wrote it, so they, they were very polite, I think. If, I, if you ask me to write, I'll write much more. Much more. This is what's happened in the Great Exchange. So this, oops, represents me, my sin, covered in sin. And let the young represent Jesus. Just for, just for today, for two seconds. <laughs> so the young represents Jesus, fully righteous. And this is me, fully sinful. 
and at the cross, God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So this is what happens. Okay. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6 it says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, idolaters, etc. will inherit the kingdom of God. That was what I was, outside the kingdom of God. But this is what God did. He tells Jesus, Be thou David, full of adultery. <clears throat> be thou Paul, full of hate for me. And be thou Mark with all those things and more. And then what do I get? I get the white shirt. God made him who, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thanks, Ian. So that's why God did the first gift of reconciliation. Well, secondly then, He also gave us the messengers, the message of reconciliation spoken, persuaded by human messengers. So the Christian minister is the messenger boy. You you don't have to be ordained as a reverend for that. The work's the same whether you are or not. The messenger boy of Jesus. But now with much dignity, because of the message, the messenger boy becomes Christ's ambassador. Verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So you see, there was no need for the Corinthians to ask for Paul's CV. There was no need for Paul to depend on it, either impressive a CV as it was. Why would he? As far as Christ is concerned, he was Christ's ambassador. This is the one qualification, the must-have of the Christian minister. His source of authority must come from Christ, the King of Kings. It doesn't matter if he's appointed by a council. Must he have an ordained? No. Must he have a theological degree? No. Important as these things are, they are not indispensable. And I'm sure Andrew and Y, who have both these things, would agree. What's the must-have qualification? The Christian minister must have personally experienced what it means to be reconciled to God. He must know it is a gift, it's all by grace. And it is this experience of grace where a sinner has been made righteous by the one who knew no sin, becoming sin for me. And then the gift of this message to the messenger boy to be an ambassador for Christ with his clothes of righteousness, bringing the message of reconciliation, persuading others, urging people to be reconciled to God. It comes from one sinner to another, from one made righteous to one who could be, by the same message, by the same work of Jesus, exchanging himself for you and me. Well, notice the two gifts. 
the ministry is both a divine and human activity. We've heard that in chapter 4, Paul sets forth the truth plainly, God turns on the light. That's why Paul can say 6 verse 1, working together with him, we appeal to you. So pastors, teachers, preachers, evangelists, any minister of God are no more, or shall I say no less, than the messenger of God, the ambassador of Christ to the whole world. The envoy, the spokesman, the blogger, making God's appeal to sinners, imploring people, be reconciled to God. Well, is it something for us? Sure, we don't share Paul's apostolic authority, but all authentic ministers of God are expected to follow his pattern. Is this something for you? Or is it just for the professionals? Well, ask yourself these questions. Have you experienced this grace of God who made him, who knew no sin to become sin for us? Do we see the privilege of gospel ministry working together with God to appeal and persuade others to come back to him? Have we experienced God's love that should compel us out of our comfort zones to share it with everyone? Well, finally we come to the conclusion. And it is this point which Paul wants to leave us with. Those three points will be challenging enough for us. But Paul is not evangelizing the Corinthians. Nor is he really interested in getting the Corinthians to evangelize more. Remember the context. He is defending his ministry against the charge of the super apostles. Against those in the church which he, uh, he taught at. Who are starting to listen to these peddlers of God's word. Do you notice something strange about verse 20? Who is it addressed to? The Christians in Corinth. We implore you, be reconciled to God. Oh, this was no altar call. They were already Christians. I wonder if that surprised you. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you, Corinthians, be reconciled to God. It's no slip of the pen. He repeats the idea in 6 verse 1. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Why? Why were they in danger of doing that? Because by becoming so worldly in their views, they started to delight in the wrong sort of ministry and the wrong sort of apostle. And they needed to be reconciled to God. The fight, you see in chapter 12, they came for a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. They were going for a different God. The fight for Corinth was on. They were drifting apart from Paul and that meaning being torn away from God. Led away to what the super apostles were offering them. Impressive outward appearance. Now you must be thinking, wait, hang on, hang on. They are drifting away from Paul. 
they are not drifting away from God. Maybe Paul's just being bitter. We're unhappy with you, Paul, not, not God. Well, Paul is at pains to remind them that he is Christ's ambassador. You can't separate how you treat Paul with how, to how you treat God. If you've got a problem with an ambassador, it means you've got a problem with the king who sent him. Because the ambassador was very simply the king's representative. If you're hostile to the ambassador, it was an act of war against the king. And the Corinthians took issue with Paul. They were taking issue with God. If they rejected Paul's uh, message and methods, they were rejecting God himself. And yet see the surprising words of grace of Paul, God's messenger. We implore you. He's on his knees. It's not a threat. There's no pressure. But simple persuasion. We are Christ's ambassadors. Please come back to God. Perhaps there's a word here for BTPC Corinth. What are we boasting in? We who pride ourselves in not being like them. Ah yes, we are alright because our pastor doesn't wear sharp suits and makeup. Ah yes, his salary is two zeros less than the megachurch guys, at least. Ah yes, our ushers wear t-shirts, they don't wear suits and Bluetooth headsets. Ah, our building is not going to quite make it as a lifestyle hub. Ah yes, we've got 50% attendance at Bible studies. We study the Bible. Is that what we boast about? Is that what motivates us to keep doing the right things that we do? Well, if it is, isn't it just a different, more subtle pride in the outward things? So perhaps there's a message for us here. Be reconciled to God. Come back. Come back to biblical ministry. Take pride in Paul and let him be our apostle. Imitate him. Let the fear of the Lord motivate us. Let the love of Christ control us. And take up the great honour of being Christ's ambassador. Let's pray. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Lord, please help us to listen to Paul's persuasive words. Let us hear his reasoning. Let us hear it is all to do with Christ and serving him. Forgive us when we regard people according to the flesh, according to the worldly ways. Thank you that we are in Christ and that we are a new creation and we must have nothing to do with that. And thank you for these words of grace to be reconciled to you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.